Thank you for joining us on the Underdog Podcast, the place where we believe at one point in your life, you were an underdog and overcame adversity. And for that reason, we want to hear your story. I am your boy, Calvin Blackman. And I am Kyle Decker. This episode is powered by the Job Center Staffing. Today, we want to welcome Chad Harvington all the way from the West Coast, Seattle, Washington. Chad is a true trailblazer. What if we told you you had one in 7,000 chance to win? Would you make the bet? Man, no. His team was the first ever Little League World Series team to beat these odds and win the world championship at a young age of 12. He then took his talents to the University of Washington, where they won two Pac-10 championships with Chad as their team captain before he was drafted into the minor leagues. After only making a measly 7000 a year for six years, man, that's broke, he made a dramatic decision to open a t-shirt company in his parents' garage. Fast forward to today, and he is the founder and CEO of Prep Sportswear, Vintage Brand, and Fan Thread. Welcome, Chad. Thank you. Glad to be here. That was a mouthful. It sure was. Wow. Chad's got a lot of accomplishments, so yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. he can take credit for that. He's bringing the heat from the <laughs> West Coast, and I, I, I was just I was trying to ramble on there. So welcome to the show, though. Thank you. Um, Want to start off, first off, thank you for your time. I know uh, traveling from the West Coast to the East Coast and being here in this beautiful facility, and we're shooting live inside of Chad's warehouse. Um, look forward to telling the listeners the story of how we're all here today, especially your story. And uh, let's go ahead and kick it off. Absolutely. Uh, again, Chad, thank you very much. Uh, it's my first time getting to meet you, obviously. And I think with the prep work and everything and just excited to hear your story. Um, you're born and raised in Seattle, Washington. Is that correct? That's correct. Um, then you went on to, uh, to play college baseball and professional baseball but um to get us kicked off i'd like to know a little bit about your childhood just talk us a little bit through um your childhood uh you know being raised in seattle washington and, and kind of take us through that timeline all right i grew up in seattle washington um my parents uh had met out in the east coast and my dad was in the service and my dad was from seattle and shortly after they were married they decided to come back out to seattle and i was born shortly after that um you know, my parents were always really supportive through my childhood. They're still together today. I've uh, been really active in the development of me uh, through my early years, but also in my professional years. Uh, you know, followed me all through college and professional baseball. I made a lot of road trips. Um, and then when it was time to start our, our second business, the one that we're here today to talk about a little bit about, uh, you know, they were involved. And a lot of it happened because of misfortunes in their life and opportunities that we saw and, you know, I had a younger, or have a younger brother who's three years younger than me, and um, you know we were best of friends growing up, and ended up getting a chance to play college baseball together at the University of Washington, and then we've basically started a, a series of businesses together, uh, one of which he runs, which is an investment business, and then uh, I run the other uh, remaining businesses, and together uh, we've uh, kind of gone down that road and. So, you know, family's always been really important to me. I have family of my own today, and um, the hope is, you know, I can instill some of the same characteristics and qualities in my kids that my parents, uh, fortunately, uh, instilled in myself and my brother. Now, you grew up playing sports, correct? I did. What all did you play? 
Uh, you know, I started with soccer. Soccer was really short-lived. Uh, wasn't really my sport. I, I still to this day don't really understand it, but <laughs> it's okay. It's, I guess it's the world sport, right? Right. Um, but shortly after that, it was basketball and then baseball and uh, eventually football. And those three I continued to play all through high school. Which yeah. One, which, which one would you say was your favorite? Well, uh, you know, I came from a basketball family. And so uh, my dad had played a little bit in college. Uh, my cousins all played in college. And I'm, a, I'm, I'm 6'2". But I'm the, they call me the Smurf in my family. I'm the shortest of really? six cousins. Uh, I have a female cousin who's actually 6'7". Uh, she's second all time in the Pac-12 in block shots, one behind Lisa Leslie. And that's only because Lisa played on better teams and played in the NCAA tournament and so got a bunch of extra games. But um, they call me the Smurf. Uh, so it was a basketball family. You know, that was my best sport up through high school. Um, but I realized that you know, to play at the next level, uh, my opportunities were going to be with baseball. And so, you know, I, I really focused on baseball the last couple of years of high school and uh, it took me to a couple, the next couple levels. Now, who would you say of the six, did you say six? Yes. Who would you say is probably the best athlete? And the reason I ask is because I had this discussion with Kyle and his father um, previously when we recorded an episode with his father. Uh, and I come to find out his father dropped 38 points in a junior high game. But I came to realize who the best athlete in the family was. And so if you tear it, it goes Kyle's dad, his brother, and then Kyle. So that's what brings me to that question with you. Who's probably would be the best athlete? Oh, I, I think if you had all the cousins here right now, any moment in time, they're all going to agree that it was me. Okay. okay. Yeah, I, I don't think anybody's going to argue that. Um, no, it, in all seriousness, uh, <laughs> we, we, we ended up, we had basketball players, and then I became, my brother and I both played baseball, but then we, uh, the last one, the youngest, uh, was a football player. And uh, he had the opportunity to play at University of Washington and then was uh, in camp with the Seahawks. And so, it, you know, it's, we spread over the course of about 25 years. And so, you know, as we talked earlier, uh, sports have changed so much. Yeah. Uh, and these athletes today are playing at such a more of a higher level than we were, you know, just 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. So it's really hard to compare uh, across that. But, you know, we that's a conversation that happens every Thanksgiving and Christmas in our house. And it's a lot of fun to discuss uh, you know, who's the best or who would have been the best if we would have been competing against each other at the same point in time. Well, and as I said, is if people check us out on YouTube, I mean, this guy is still like, He's, we interviewed, as, we, as you know, Neil Walker last week. He's, he's striking out Neil. I'm, we're, I'm calling out Neil right now. <laughs> he could be pitching against the Marlins tonight. We're calling out Neil. Chad's calling out I think the Cubs are playing. family. <laughs> the Cubs need to fly Chad on a private jet to Miami, Florida to pitch him against the Marlins. You got one inning in you? I probably have one inning in me. Yeah, I probably won't get up the next day, but I, I got one in me tonight. Yeah. I like it. He could I'll, gas it up for an inning, you know. I'll the old like lefty or lefty, right? Lefty, that's yeah, right. Yeah, that's right. Cool, cool. Well, let's kind of go back to I think you know important event that I I disclosed in the in the intro is the Little League experience, and I know um, you know in our previous conversations of how important that experience of of that Little League championship being the number one team of over seven thousand first international championship for the United States, um, Kirkland I believe right Kirkland Little League, Kirkland um, National Little League. Yeah, right. how, tell us tell us that whole experience. You know, it was, um, you know, you look back and it's almost been 40 years uh, and probably for the first 30 years, uh, I talked about it or was asked about it at least once a month, uh, particularly when I was playing baseball up through every level. When they found out, read the media guide, you know, the first thing they wanted to do was interview me about the Little League World Series. And, you know, looking back now, um, it's, it's, it's an event in my life that really changed the course of my life. Uh, it allowed me at the age of, I was 11, playing with, up with a bunch of 12-year-olds on that team. And 
it really instilled a lot of values uh, as far as what's possible in life, not only in sports, but um, after sports. And that, you know, there are challenges in life and, and that there's nothing that you can't overcome and there's really no obstacle or no possibility that, that you can't achieve. It basically comes down to, you know, what are you willing to give up and how much effort and time are you willing to put into something? And, you know, I played on a team that, you know, as corny as it may sound, we know we believed that we could win the world championship. And when I was 10 years old, uh, playing on uh, a normal t- a team within the league, the all-star coaches that ended up coaching the all-star team were my uh, regular season uh, coaches. And they would set up, and they had already been to the World Series in 1980. It was the first team from Washington that ever qualified to go to the League World Series. They finished third, um, lost to Tampa in the national championship, and then Tampa lost to Taiwan the next day. And so they had been there, and they knew that in two years, they were going to have a team that had the potential to not only go there, but to, to beat the Taiwanese. And so we would practice, and we would play situations, and they would say, you know, it's the Little League World Series, and we're playing Taiwan, and there's a man on third with two outs, and they would set the field. So we were so far ahead of other people as far as visualizing and putting ourselves in that moment at the age 11, the things like that have transpired across my life to where, you know, I use that today in business. And so, um, there was a real, at 11 years old, you know, I was almost as if I'd gone to an event and gained maybe 10 or 20 years of knowledge. Um, and after that things, you would think things became real easy, but they became much more difficult in the aspect that, once you've got that championship banner across your back, you know, everybody wants to beat you. Right? They want to play the best. They want to beat the yeah, best. Because not only did so. you beat Taiwan, you got smoked Taiwan. Six we nothing, right? That's right. That's Six right. Six nothing so, in the championship game. Yeah. So they had won 31 straight contests, the Little World Series. So back then it was an eight-team format and you only played three games. And what's significant about it, Little League had been around for, I believe, about 35 years at the time, but international competition had started in 1967. And so from 67 to 82, they'd won every game they'd played. And most of those games were 10 run games. And so when we came out there and beat them, you know, it was a really big deal. Um, But the years after that, you know, we matured pretty quickly because the adversity we faced, and it wasn't just baseball. It was like, you're playing people in football and they want to beat you because you were the little league champs, you know, eight, nine years ago. So it was a real maturity. you know, learning how to take defeat, learning how that, you know, people weren't always going to be on your side, that wherever you played, your parents were rooting for you and everybody else was rooting against you. Right. And so that's similar to like business being the underdog. You know, you guys are talking about underdogs in business, but that is, um, you know, that, that's what allowed me to get to a point where, you know, I could be the underdog every day when I walk in here and know that I, I'm prepared for that because I grew up in that environment. Sure, sure. And I think we're going to see that. I mean, it's amazing to talk about like that base foundation. And as we progress here, I think obviously it's going to be, that's going to be residual through his experiences. And like I said, um, not only you're a trailblazer, which we'll get to, but I think you're just, you're a champion, right? So moving on to, to that aspect in a, a piece that you said was probably one of the most adverse points of your life, which is your experience at Notre Dame. So talk, walk us through, I guess, your first couple of years of Notre Dame uh, after high school and then how that um, how you how you transferred to University of Washington, how that happened. Yeah, so, you know, I grew up in Seattle. Um, you know, I was fortunate to play with a, a bunch of other kids that were really accelerated in baseball, which accelerated my game. And by the time I was a senior in high school, I was one of the better players in the country. Um, had the opportunity to, to visit uh, five schools and what, really five? narrowed down. Uh, you know, I went to Cal Berkeley, okay. um, University of Notre Dame, 
San Diego State, Oklahoma, and Washington. And, you know, I would have stayed home initially, uh, but at the time, Washington didn't have a facility. They basically played out in a parking lot. They played in what was called the Northern Pac-10 at the time. So it was basically almost like Division II type teams. Um, and then they played all their non-conference games were against community colleges because there was no travel budget. So I knew if I wanted to play at the next level, I really had to play against the best. So I made the decision that I wanted to go to a good academic school. And so I narrowed the decision down to Cal Berkeley and I narrowed in University of Notre Dame and uh, really felt like uh, there was a home at Notre Dame. The coach was young. He was 32 years old, youngest coach in Division I. Uh, he's currently the um, head assistant coach, uh, Milwaukee Brewers, Pat Murphy. And he really sold me on the opportunity to come to the University of Notre Dame. And they had just broke the top 25 the year before and that I'd probably have a real strong opportunity to come in and be in the starting rotation as a freshman. And he had one of the top 10 recruiting classes in the country. So, you know, I signed on and away I went to South Bend, Indiana. Wow. Wow, that's a long way going from Seattle to South Bend. I'm familiar with South Bend, been there a few times. That's a, it's a different beast. Oh, it's it a, is. South Bend, Indiana is a unique uh, college town. I'll just leave it at that. Yeah. Far, yeah. So, well, yeah. I can tell you here, you know. 30, it's a football town too. It's a football but town. It, it used to be baseball, it sounds like. Yeah, it used to be baseball. But, you know, now I know 30 years later that, um, you know, it, it snows all spring. And so, you know, nobody told me that when I was being recruited, right? They were like, oh, you know, come out to Notre Dame. It's one of the greatest schools in the planet. You probably went to a football game or... Yeah, so they, they, that's what they did. They wanted to bring out a football game. In August and, uh, or September, well, right? the funny thing was all the recruits <laughs> are coming out for football. They're coming out for the Notre Dame-Michigan game. Right? Oh, so bring them all out that weekend, blue. pump them all up. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I was supposed to go on that trip, but my SAT scores weren't high enough. So they're like, oh, you know, you got to stay back and take the SAT again. We'll bring you out in the spring. So that ended up working against me because it snowed that game, that football game. And a lot of those guys from Florida and California didn't go. Well, they brought me out after I improved my test scores out in like uh, April, right before the signing deadline. So they got to see me last, which worked against me. And then they also brought me out and it was 85 degrees, much like it is today in Louisville, right? And so you kind of get this fake spring day and you're like, this is great. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm all in, right? And so I, you know, I made, decided to make the trip to South Bend. Wow, that's a great story. So now you're at South Bend, and now walk us through uh, your career with Notre Dame. So I show up there, and um, you know it was it was you know whenever you change levels in sports, which you guys know playing at the college level, um, that's a big step. And so you know you step in there, and the fall was a big adjustment for me. Um, I probably wasn't quite ready for what I stepped into, and we had a lot of competition. As on the freshman, there was five of us. Uh, ends up now, you know, 20 years down the road, uh, of those five guys, you know, four of them end up playing triple A ball and one ends up making it to the major leagues and doing pretty well. And so, uh, it was competitive and I got through the fall and I was probably about eighth or ninth on the depth chart and college program, usually the top three guys. So pretty much all the innings. Um, I came back after the winter, after coming home and adjusting for a couple of weeks and went back. And by the time we started a month later, I was the number two guy. And so we had a senior who was all conference year before. He was going to start the first night game out at University of Hawaii. They were ranked in the top 10. And I was throwing the second game. And so we get beat like 15 nothing the first night, right? And so here I am, freshman in the games. At that time, there was no really cable network. But the University of Hawaii had an accelerated baseball program. So they had the nicest stadium in the country. They had all their games were on satellite, and they broadcast it all back to the mainland. So, you know, I got all my family going down to the local bar to watch this game. And here I am pitching in front of 4,000 fans. And I watched us, you know, get the crap kicked out of us 15 nothing the night before, right? So I go out there and end up 
pitching seven innings, leave the game one and seven, two. And of course my roommate comes in behind me <laughs> and gives up six runs, right? This is a great story. Gives up six runs. So I, I don't get the win and we actually end up losing the game. Yeah. That clown, uh, Dave Sennis, buddy of mine, he ends up not giving up another run. The rest of the season ends up leading the country in ERA. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So I'm wow, Dave, 30 Dave, years later, still Dave. calling him out on that one, right? Yeah. yeah. We're going to have to get so that Dave was my on first this. Start. Yeah. So what a yeah. story. That's, yeah. that's, that's a unique story too. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Can I ask a question? And you touched on a little bit earlier, and I don't know if it still plays, plays a part in what you're doing today, but what role does visualization play? Because you talked a little bit about it. I know it played a big role for me in high school um, before games of just visualization. And I know you'll probably touch on the poster of your coach, the picture of your coach hanging over your bed or whatnot. But what role does visual, visualization still play a role in your life today in business? And, and did it play a role in sports as you got older? Oh, it's, it's huge. Uh, you know, visualization does a lot of things. Um, you know, first and foremost, it gives you confidence. Um, if you can anticipate what's going to happen next, you know, when it happens, you, you're, you're not caught off guard. Um, you've expected it. Um, another thing it does is it puts you in the mindset that, you know, you can think through situations. You know, you've maybe already thought those situations through and you can just react. And any, any great athlete will tell you, you know, when you're, practicing it's all about coaching and fundamentals but when you get out in the arena and you're competing and especially competing at a high level against the best in the world it's all about reaction you gotta let your natural instincts your natural ability take over so you know visualization puts you in that aspect where you are prepared to be able to do that um in business you know we're sitting right now in a ninety-one thousand square foot facility uh just 11 years ago this was in a 200 square foot facility in my parents garage and so People ask me all the time, did you see it grow into this? And the answer is, I did. You know, I saw all this and I saw not necessarily who would be in here, what manufacturing processes we would be using or how we would have the floor plan, but actually seeing it at this scale and how we could get from 200 square feet to 91,000 square feet, you know, that visualization played a big part in that. And you, hold on, hold on. We have, we have to make make a little, let's go. I got to see if you really visualize. Did you visualize a podcast in the middle of a 91,000 square foot facility? <laughs> now you got me. I, this is where the curveball comes in, right? But you gave me three weeks to prepare, right? right. So, so I've been doing some visualization the last three okay. weeks. Okay, so. all right, all right. There we go, Steve. All right, he's consistent. Okay, I just, I'm just saying. You I know. like it. Yeah, and I think the thing about visualization, too, is, you know, it, you've once you visualize, you've, you've already, and then it, it comes to fruition, you've already been there before. That's right. So, you know what I mean? Right. So I think that's where the power of visualization comes in. I, exactly. You, you look at people and they talk about experience, mm -hmm. right? Well, if you don't have experience, you know, how can you gain it? You know, visualization is, is one of those elements that you can use as a weapon, as a strength to gain that experience, even though you've never actually lived that moment. Right. So let's finish off real quick, and then I, I want to get obviously the main point of, of being here. Like I said, prep sports where the garage to, to here is, is an amazing story. So definitely let's get there. But I want to touch upon before we close the college chapter is that transfer. I know that was a big, like you said, motivational, like you visualized getting in. You were the two time, you know, pack champion uh, for baseball at Washington and two time captain, which I, to me is even more impressive, right? Your teammates obviously saw your leadership skills once you got there. Um, so you're the team two, two time team captain of two championships. I mean, that's fantastic. Tell us a little bit about that before we get into the business. Yeah, I you're right. That was, um, that was one of the big points in my life looking back. Um, 
you know, I, I did well my, my freshman year at Notre Dame uh, through about the first eight weeks. In college baseball, it's a really short season. You play like 56 games, but it's really condensed. Uh, it's over like about a four-month uh, period of time. And uh, through the first couple months, I did really well. And then, you know, I had, I had a little injury with my arm. Um, it wasn't nothing that required surgery or anything, but my arm just kind of went dead. And, it, you know, I faced some adversity. And like I said, there were other guys on the team that were extremely talented and they kind of stepped in. And, and I sort of got, you know, in athletics since got buried. Um, went home, played a little bit that summer, tried to rehab my arm, came back, prepared my sophomore year. Uh, the program had grown quite a bit. We had the best record in the country that year, ended up like 46 and five. And we had another great recruiting class coming in because of the success of, of that season. So we had a couple guys that had played on the junior Olympic team that were coming in, both left-handed pitchers. And again, three or four guys are going to get to throw all the innings. And here we are really stacked. And we go through the fall and it doesn't look like, you know, my arm looks like it's is healthy again, but I'm not really getting, you know, the necessary uh, innings that I'm going to need in order to compete. And we get into the um, spring season and then we go on the first three trips and I don't, I don't pitch a single inning. I don't even, they don't even get me up to warm up. And we've got the fourth week. And the fourth week is a tournament that was being played in the kingdom in Seattle, Washington. So I'm going home, right? So the coach, he had gotten to a point where um, in baseball, not everybody has a scholarship. There's roughly 13 scholarships divided amongst about 30 players. But Notre Dame was underfunded for baseball at the time. We only had four full scholarships. Wow. And I had 80% of a scholarship. So when he realized that he had guys that he could play in front of me and here I was a guy that he wasn't necessarily going to need to utilize, uh, he started putting a lot of pressure on me to either quit or to transfer. And so when he realized that I was just going to fight and that I knew I was better than these other guys, that I wasn't going to give in, he decided uh, for that trip without telling me I showed up for the bus to get on the bus to go to the airport to fly home, uh, I wasn't on the list to travel. And they just said, you're not going, we're not taking you. And it was spring break. And at the University of Notre Dame, they closed the school down spring break. So there's not even anywhere to stay. There's no mess hall. And here I am 2,000 miles away from home. And this is, you know, this is 25 years ago when it wasn't easy to just go jump on a plane or get your parents to wire you some money or use PayPal or any of this type of stuff. It was, what am I going to do? Right. And so I went and jumped on another another bus with some buddies. And we went down to South Padre Island and partied for a whole week, right? That <laughs> right? was the winter, right? right? It was that week that I decided, you know, my mom... I, I didn't want to give in and leave and disappoint my family. And um, my mom basically said on the phone, I called her, she said, do you want to leave that school? And I said, I do. And so that, then that process started, you know, where am I going to go? And I thought in order for me to have the best chance of success, I needed to go back home. So I called the coach of the University of, of, University of Washington. And, you know, he had recruited me really hard out of, out of high school two years previously. And he said, yeah, I'd love to have you. So... I made the commitment that I was going to go to the University of Washington and stayed in school the rest of that year, which is about another two months, and kept working out and throwing against the wall and uh, showed up that summer, played summer ball with them, yep. and then ended up uh, playing there for the next three years. Okay. Sounds good. And this is the, the benefit of uh, living in a warehouse. I love this. <laughs> love Great. it. Great. The first live episode. Doorbells <laughs> and, and sirens. And it's all right. It means there's a lot of activity going on. That's right. As long as the job center employee is not causing problems, we're good. So <laughs> Just don't lay them off. All right. So, so, so okay. Which is great. Um, so taking us from, from that spring break, you're working out, you transfer back to, to your home uh, to go to Washington, and then, then what happens? And so, you know, it was a – there was a basically a whole year gap there where I hadn't really pitched, at least in games. And so there was the confidence thing, and then that's where another 
the visualization comes in, you know, you're not actually out there pitching, but you got to feel like you're out there. So, you know, visualizing yourself out in the mound and coming back in and, and competing now on a new team with the handful of guys that have been entrenched that, you know, coaches have basically recruited, have been there playing for two or three years, and they've got a whole depth chart of pitchers. A program that was very average at best, um, you know, hadn't beat its cross-state rivalry, Washington State, in nine years, even though they played six times a year. So, wow. you know, there was a lot of adversity in this program. We were one of the only Division One programs in the country that didn't have a dedicated baseball field. I mean, we were literally playing like in a grassy knoll. And so, um, you know, I stepped in and, and had a pretty good fall. And uh, the coach saw my competitive nature and saw my leadership abilities and knew that he'd seen me play in high school at a really high level. And... Um, you know, he told me, he said, you're going to be the number two guy starting the, the spring. And so, you know, I came out and, and did really well right out of the shoot. And we got to about the fifth or sixth week of the season. And we had to make that trip to Pullman, Washington, play Washington State. And I walked into his office on, uh, on a Wednesday after practice. And we were going to leave Thursday, play Friday, Saturday, Sunday series and said, you know, I know we haven't beat these guys in, in nine years. And that's a span of about 54 games. I said, and it's not because we're not as good. It's because these guys don't believe we can beat these guys. And he kind of just looked at me and I said, I don't think you believe we can beat them either. And he had said, you know, hey, the program's better than our program and we're just not at that level. And I said, well, I, I don't think that's true anymore. I said, I want the ball in the first game. And he looked at me and he had a big chew in. He took a big spit off to the side and he said, all right, you got the ball. And I said, I guarantee you we win. I walked out the door and he, he told the other guy, you know what, you're going to pitch the second game. And the other guy's a senior, and he ends up going, this kid ends up going 12-0 and that year and has a great year, all pack, all pack 10 at the time. And uh, he was relieved. You know, he didn't want to throw that first game in Pullman because he knew there was going to be, it was mom's weekend, there'd be 5,000 people in the fans all rooting against us. And, you know, we hadn't beat him in nine years. So we go out there and we end up beating them 3-1. Wow. We swept the series. They didn't beat us that whole year. We won all six games. Hey, confidence. Right. Bringing the swagger and the belief, like you said, the visualization, that's, that's a great story. And then, and then the guts to go up to your manager and say, hey, I want the ball over a senior. I mean, that, that is, uh, wow, what a great, you know, I love that. I, I, I love that so much. I mean, just takes, that takes a lot of guts, especially people realize, like, now that you're older, um, you know, I look back, that you're a young man at that point, and that's, that's a difficult thing to do, you know, go up to a, a grown man and saying, hey, you don't believe, <laughs> you don't believe we're going to win, and I want the ball change your decision. So, I mean, that's, that takes a lot of guts. That's right. That's, um, you know, that, as an employer today, uh, you know, that's why I want to have my employees, you know, I want them to step up and tell me, you know what, I can do this. I got this. Right. And then show me that you can do it. And, you know, the people that I've had around me now for 10 years, you know, they're people that have those traits, you know, they're, for, they're most likely former athletes because they've been in that realm and they have that confidence. But I have my uh, creative director with me on this trip. Uh, she's a, she played at Seattle uh, Pacific University, which is a Division II basketball school. She was the captain of the team for two years, and she played for the national championship at the Division II level. They lost the national championship, but she's brought that. She's been here with me for uh, nine years, and I've challenged her all the way along the way, and it's been because she's come to me and said, you know what, there's an opportunity here. I want it, and she's been able to fulfill on that, and that's what, as an employer, you know, that's what I'm looking for today is to find people that, that, that will step up and will, will challenge not only themselves, but challenge me to challenge them. 
Yeah, absolutely. And then you're drafted, moving on to your professional baseball career. You're drafted, what, 42nd round? Is that right? Uh, 20th. 21st. 20th. Okay. 20th. Yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I'm adding rounds. I wasn't drafted, so I got to make it. added 21 rounds. I thought 20 was bad. <laughs> 42nd. I don't know what I'm. I don't know. There's something. 42, I was number 42. So. Okay, there it is. There it is. We wrote, okay, that's what I, I'm getting things crossed over here. I should be looking and, and, and looking at my, my notes here. But so you're drafted 20. 20th round. Yeah. 20th round. Yeah. Okay. And then that was by the Giants. Giants, Giants right? Yeah, because you played for a couple of different. You had a, a had a had a few opportunities. Um, so tell us a little bit about. And I know, like I said, having a good friend in minor league baseball, how much of a grind that is, and how much um, kind of your career. Because I know you got up to AAA and kind of up and down throughout the minor leagues and and being so close to the majors. You know, kind of tell us through your professional baseball career, yeah. which is great, by the way. I mean, not that I just dogged the twenty. 20th round no, it's versus great. It makes 30. it a better story. Right? Right. 42nd pick, round picks don't make it to AAA. <laughs> 20 round picks don't make it to AAA, to be honest with you. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and again, 20 years ago, it was a different game. Uh, now you see uh, you see these players, they're, they're moving a lot more progressively through the system. There's a lot of reasons for that. You know, one is we, we know we cleaned it up. There's not as many drugs in the game, which allowed people to play much longer uh, than 20 years ago than they are today. And you also have, um, there was a lot of pent up demand from free agency that started in 87 where these guys ended up getting these longer contracts and staying on. So there was hardly any movement up through the system until we got into really the 2000s. And so you're seeing a lot of movement, which is great for the game. Um, see these younger kids getting these opportunities. But yeah, I was drafted in 94 draft. Um, you know, I didn't know much about minor league baseball other than that I wanted to play at that level and realized very quickly that um, you go from being a boy to being a man and it's uh, you're playing every single day. And it's unless you've done that, it's really hard to understand how do you mentally prepare yourself? How do you physically prepare yourself to play a game that's played every single day? You know, it's not like basketball and football. You're playing every day. And what that means is you're showing up to field every day at two o'clock and you're leaving that field about 11 p.m. every day. So you're spending nine hours at the field, and then you're going on uh, road trips, which you know at the lower levels below uh, AAA, you're bussing it. And it can be anywhere from a three- or four-hour trip to up to, you know, I had some trips that were 16, 17 hours. And so that means you finish a game and leave, finish at 11 o'clock at night and get on the bus like at midnight, you're going straight to the next field because it's 16 hours, right? You don't stop at the hotel. You go straight there, get off, take batting practice, play, and then you go to the hotel. And so in the course of maybe a 12 or 13 day road trip, you spend three full nights on the bus. So you get eight, nine nights in a hotel and three nights on a bus. So it's, it's tough. It's, it's, it's a really tough. You're not making a whole lot of people have a misconception. A lot of the minor leaguers are making close to like minimum wage, really. I mean, it's not, Depending not even, on not where even, you're drafted, not even right? minimum wage. Yeah, it's know? very, There's very been a low. A lot of conversation wage. around that. Um, should they qualify for minimum wage? You know, Congress has actually been some lawsuits. Congress has actually stepped in on, on a few of those things. Where, you know, when I'm at the field that long, you're traveling on the bus. Is that time served or is that not time served? And uh, I came in at the lowest level and there's. There's an antitrust exemption for baseball. Most people don't know that. So they can, um, they can collude against the players. And so when they draft you, they own you for six years. And so you come in, there's, there's no negotiation on what you're going to be paid. I was paid $850 a month at that first level. And then it went up $50 a month uh, at each successive level. So by the time I got to AAA, uh, when I got called up to the AAA team, it was the last year Phoenix had a team before the Diamondbacks were going to move in in uh, 98. So this is 97. We had the best record in baseball, that team that year. And there's 23 guys on the roster at AAA. I get called up. I'm the only guy that hasn't been in the big leagues. So these are all guys that have been up for 
certain amount of time and now they're back down. And I came up, I was making $7,000 a year. Okay. And Pat Rapp, I ended up getting into the starting rotation within the first three or four weeks up there on the best team in base. There's 220 teams in minor league baseball. We had the best record that year, 94, 95 games. And um, Pat Rapp was sitting out in the bullpen making two and a half million dollars a year. He'd been up for three or four years and had signed a, you know, through salary arbitration and had come back down. So there's a huge discrepancy in the minor leagues. The whole key is back then the whole key was to get up for one day. You get union protection, and if you go back down, you couldn't make less than 80% of the prorated major league minimum. Now, the rules have changed today, and they prorate it on a daily basis, so you see a lot more movement. Guys going up, now they come back down, and they pay them per day that they're up there per game. Whereas back then, if they moved you up, now they're on the hook to pay you even if they sent you down. So there wasn't a lot of opportunity to move up. They wanted to make sure if you go up, you know, you're basically going to have to stay. So that's changed a lot of the the progression of, of oh, two players po- getting two point five million to seven thousand. <laughs> that's year. a little bit of a discrepancy. What was your um, wow? Just one question I had. What was your favorite between San Jose, Oklahoma City, Phoenix, Shreveport, Bakersfield, Sioux Falls? I mean, that's all over the country. What was See, your favorite? Your stats over there too. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. 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 Well, we'll um, there's some really good stats here. There's probably a few stats that maybe not he doesn't like as much, but. <laughs> There was one or two stops that were pretty tough. Yeah, don't worry. I was a backup four-string quarterback in college. So yeah. you playing at AAA level is about 40 levels above me. So you should be extremely proud. But what was your favorite city that you, you, you played on? You know, there, there's two that really stood out. Um, you know, obviously Phoenix, uh, playing AAA in Phoenix. Um, you know, Phoenix was a, still is a growing growing city and uh the only game in town really was the, at the major level was the suns at the time you know they played through the winter and so in the in the spring and the summer you know we were at the phoenix firebirds and uh you know you kind of felt like a, a major league player uh playing in phoenix as a minor leaguer and so that was that was pretty cool um and you know i've always i've always loved the valley down there uh and then san jose was a really unique experience if you look at the years i was there i was there 95 96 uh, I lived with a family because the, the rents at that time were so high and we were getting paid so little that, you know, they found uh, families to board us. And I was living three blocks from Apple, Netscape, Yahoo, Cisco. All these guys were right there when 95, 96, everything was just blowing up, right. right? And there were all these kids my age, I was 25, 26, you know, driving around in brand new BMWs and Lexus and Range Rovers. And here I was driving a beat up, neon green geo metro right making seven thousand dollars a year so it was really unique to to see what was going on around me and to be able to stay focused and then now look back and say wow i was right there when all this was going on and really the technology era was was really blowing up so that was that was a, a real fun and unique time yeah absolutely no that's fantastic now let's let's get into uh what i love which is your you know entrepreneur spirit after you trans- transitioned out of professional baseball you started at that time um, Rainier Financial Group with your brother, correct? That's correct. Okay. And, um, you know, tell us a little bit about how that started and then um, what you guys were doing there and then obviously um, getting into uh, prep sportswear and then the vintage brand. So. Let me ask, to add on to your question, was entrepreneurship something that you had seeked out coming out of college or something that kind of just fell into your lap? And that probably will lead into the story, but just kind of curious on your yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, you know, I, I, I come from a family of salesmen. Um, everybody in the previous generation sold something. Uh, my dad was a traveling salesman, was a manufacturer's rep, sold mostly apparel, uh, worked out of the house. And, you know, I saw him um, 
even though he was uh, on his own, I saw him get lines, build up uh, sales distribution for companies and then have them take it and bring it in house and kind of discard him. And so I had two goals in growing up. One was um, I knew I wanted to be in something that I could create and have ownership in. And I knew that I never wanted to uh, work for somebody else. And, uh, you know, I started at a really young age, um, you know, selling gum at school, selling, going in the summer and finding golf balls in the golf course and sitting out there selling them all day long. And I was always trying to figure out, you know, I didn't know the time, but I was, you know, this entrepreneur and just had this desire to, to build something. And so I always knew that. Um, so coming out of college, um, I knew my aspirations were to play baseball and I didn't know how long that would go on for, but through those six years, you know, I did a really good job of staying current and doing a lot of reading and just following a lot was going on. And when I came out of baseball, I knew right away that I wanted to get into something that I could, I could build and it was around sales. So, um, leading into Kyle's question, uh, my brother and I had had the opportunity to play baseball together at the university of Notre Dame, We're both left-handed pitchers. And he was three years behind me. So by the time I was finishing playing baseball, he'd been in the workforce for three years and he had done really well, uh, working for, a a life insurance company, uh, selling life insurance, annuities, and uh, mutual funds. And I felt like, wow, if I, I was so far behind the ball financially when I get done. You, know, you go six years making uh, $42,000 collectively, right? And 28, 29 years old, living with your parents, that I really felt like I had to get out of this hole. So it was like starting a business just wasn't on the, on the table for me at the time. And so I decided that I'd go in and join my brother. And I knew that he'd take a vested interest in me. And I felt like there was a lot of qualities. We'd always complimented each other. Mm-hmm. I felt there's a lot of qualities I could bring probably to probably improve what he was currently doing, even though I knew nothing about it. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he thought that was interesting when I made that pitch to him. <laughs> so, you know, I show up on day one and right away I've got some, you know, some, some insight into, hey, you know, why are you doing this? And he thought that was pretty funny. He told me, you know, just sit down and shut up and learn. And so here's a little brother getting his opportunity to basically lead big brother, right? right. And so it was really a, a turn of, um, of events from the previous uh, 29 years of our lifetime. And um, again, he was doing exceptionally well in a sales force of about 1,500 sales reps. He was in the top five and um, was quite a bit younger than, this is a, an old man's basically, uh, uh, industry where he had a lot of guys that were 45 and older selling insurance home to home. And that's what he was doing. And, you know, I saw right away that the opportunity wasn't in selling people. It was in counseling them and being on their side of the table and actually showing them opportunities and around investments and estate planning and things like that. And so over the course of a two year period, um, I learned a lot about the industry, got all my uh, certifications and it was series seven securities license and really realized we need to start our own firm. And that would allow us to open it up and really be a basically coach with people and help show them what are the best investment allocations for them and, and lower the, lower the cost structures and things like that. So we, we decided to start Rainier financial group and went out on our own and, and, and start away. We went. Wow. Just rock and roll with your brother. I can't imagine. I love my brother to death and, and he's talked to me about, I, I don't know. Um, so I work with my father-in-law partner with him and I work with my dad. So I, I'm in a little bit in the family business, but the brothers we haven't crossed, but maybe that's something we'll have to do down the road off to call you. Say, Hey man, how do you do this with your brother? So yeah, no. So it was, you guys are still working together. Oh yeah. Happily. So, so, good. so I was 29, he's 26. We decided to um, work together and he had gotten married really young, like it right out of college, like 23. 
And right when I joined him, like two months in, uh, he and his wife divorced. And so he's got this huge transition. He's supposed to be taking me under his arm, right? And he's got this huge transition going on. Luckily, he didn't have any kids, but he had this huge transition. And he's like, you know, trying to juggle these balls. And so we go about, I'm at home for about 10 months, living in this awful uh, apartment in downtown Seattle. And uh, we decide, you know what? Let's, let's move in together. So we buy a condo together. So here we are, you know, now we're 30 and 27, living in a thousand square foot condo, working together all day long, trying to build this business. And so we were, I mean, we were in it to win it. Right. And so there was just like, you had to, you had to be close and you had to trust each other and, and, you know, away we went again. So then you build out, um, Lanier financial group, right. And, uh, it's still going on, correct? Yeah. So he's done, you know, I've, I haven't been at Rainier in uh, 13 Rainier, years I now. keep saying Lanier. Rainier. <laughs> He'll love <laughs> he that. He'll love. Just like Mount Rainier. Think Mount Rainier, Rainier, Rainier. in Seattle, Washington. Yeah, yeah. Mount yeah. Rainier. I'm, I'm like that Midwest. Just, he's, he's probably going to think that Midwest corn-fed guy over there can't say anything West Coast. So, <laughs> And he's geographically challenged as well, too. So. <laughs> but yes, Rainier. Yeah, yeah. Which you climbed, right? Oh, yeah. Not yeah, to go off yeah, subject yeah, here, yeah. but Rainier yeah. does mean a lot to you, right? Yeah. Again, I did it with my brother, right? Yeah. And we had seven of our, of our close friends and yeah, that was a that was. If you're ever out in that area and you're into that sort of thing, that is something to to seek. It's uh, I might have to train. Quite an I might have to train for a little bit before I do that. <laughs> <laughs> highly advised. Highly advised. It's a little more difficult than it looks. Yeah, yeah, I can. So, how long does it take you to to, to climb that thing? We went up with the guide service, okay. um, and it was a three day deal. Okay. One day, um, kind of life saving techniques, getting used to the equipment, and then uh, you spend two days. You go up basically uh on a on a day and a half period and then you come all the way down in a half a day okay uh, so it's a little over fourteen thousand feet and it's you know it's after ten thousand feet it's all glacier and you do it in the middle of the night because once the sun comes up the glacier starts being impacted by the heat and a lot of movement so you know you're climbing up there and you you summit sometime around seven thirty eight in the morning and then by you know eight thirty you're on your way back down so for our one of our company retreats we decided to go hiking and mr blackman and i here um it didn't go well. We actually faced, uh, it was like the Indian face trail of uh, Indian East of Lexington. Indian staircase. Black dudes don't hike. <laughs> <laughs> Just drop that out there. I don't, not for it's, me. Oh, I wasn't going to go to that extreme, but we. I'll go there. <laughs> <laughs> so we're, cli- we're climbing, we're climbing this Indian, was it staircase? In, yeah. Yeah. Indian staircase. And uh, the guy we're with, like one of the trails are closed and, you know, we don't have tennis. We, we have tennis shoes on this guy that we work with. He has like hiking boots on he's like oh we're gonna go some rookie course but it was closed the rookie course was closed but the 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 veteran course was open and i'm telling you we were we were bellied up on this rock in this indian staircase and, and we we eyes. thought we <laughs> thought we were dying man so i don't know how you know rainier would go for us but man i i, I can't imagine i'm sure it's about 500 times larger than the indian oh, yeah. staircase but hey you know what it's a challenge maybe we'll go out visit chad and Show them that, you know what, go outside our comfort zone. You know, if, if we've learned anything so far is this man just keeps rolling. I will, I, will do, I will do the training with you guys, and I will go up to the base camp at 10,000 feet. But I've promised my wife after we had kids that I'm not going to do anything that crazy anymore. So. <laughs> All right. Now he's saying it's crazy. Yeah, so we might not. <laughs> I'm yeah. good. Yeah. We can just go do batting practice. <laughs> <laughs> good with that. So, All right. So um, to get to the point, okay, now uh, tell us the start with your parents in that garage, like you said, like 200 square feet, not even to obviously this beautiful facility and the business you've built, you know, being the entrepreneur you are, um, tell us then how you went and started the business. Yeah. So, you know, we started, uh, the investment company in 2002, 
Um, and we, we made a commitment to ourselves, my brother and I, that, you know, once we knew we were successful financially, that it looked like it was going to pencil and that we were profitable and revenue was flowing in that we would take, cause we were working extremely hard. We were working, it was a seven day a week deal. And that went on for quite some time because we were a year leading up to it. And then as we started to actually build the business that we would take a two week vacation and go somewhere fun. And so, uh, we got about 10 months in after we launched and we turned the corner. And so we, put that vacation on the map and we decided to uh, go to Barcelona and then we were going to drive from Barcelona all the way up to uh, Monaco and uh, go along the French Riviera and spend two weeks doing that. And so we went out there and for the first five days, like, you know, I was just like totally relaxed and my brain was just like loose and I was just having a good time. And, you know, that's, that's really hard for me to do to just set things down. And so we got to like that sixth day and we we're in, and just out, we were in Nice, just outside of Monaco. And uh, we'd been jumping from town to town. And we arrive in Nice, and like I'm running into all these hotels. We have any reservations or anything. And uh, we stopped the first three places, and I can't find anywhere to stay. And everybody's saying, oh, it's $1,000 a night for the rooms. And it was just like outrageous. And so finally, at the third or fourth place, I was like, you know, what's going on? And they're like, what do you mean, what's going on? The, the Formula they won, the Grand Prix of Monaco is this weekend. It's five miles up the street. You're not going to find anything anywhere close to here. And we're like, oh, wow, okay. I don't know anything about Formula One racing. So we bite the bullet, get get one of the last rooms. Somebody had canceled, get into this hotel. And we're like, well, shoot, we might as well go up there and check it out, right? So we drive. They, we ask them, we need tickets. They're like, no, you don't need tickets. People look at us like we didn't know what the heck we were doing, right? So we, we drive up there, and we think we're waiting to get into the parking lot to park the car. And, you know, these <gasps> crazy Europeans, just crazy. We got this souped-up Subaru that we've been driving up from uh, Barcelona. And so... We get up there and I fall, we're waiting so long in, the, long in this line. I fall asleep in the car. My brother's driving. And next thing you know, he's just, he's just laughing hysterically and he's hitting me and he's hitting me. And I, I kind of wake up and I realize we're going really fast, like <laughs> over a hundred miles an hour. And I look up and he's like, we're on the course, we're on the course. And I'm like, what? They're letting just, after they got done doing the time trials, they open up the course and they let anybody that wants to go out there on that course race around on it. So you got all these guys that are in Ferraris and souped up BMWs are flying around this course, going through the tunnel, same course the racers were on an hour earlier. And so it's like crazy. So we race through this whole thing and we're like, we're on this high. We're like, this is crazy. We love Formula One. And so we go back to the hotel and we're like, we're going back tomorrow to watch the race. We're going to watch the race. So we go back and we actually, this time we actually go to a parking lot and park, right? And so we walk down into, uh, into, Monte Carlo. And, um, it was just, it was, it was amazing. I mean, for anybody that's into sports or events or activities, I mean, that is something to see. Um, I knew nothing about auto racing still to this day. It's one of the most memorable sporting events I've ever been to. Um, for those of you who don't know, it's, it's, it's built Monte Carlo is on a hillside leading into the Mediterranean sea. And so these guys are racing along kind of like the ocean or the sea right there and, and through the city and there's tunnels and everything else. And it's, it's on actual streets. It's not, this isn't a racetrack. This is the city streets. And so the people come in and, you know, formula racing, there's not like, it's not like the NFL. There's not like 30 teams, you know, they've got like six or eight teams and each team is really kind of followed by a certain country. Cause you've got like BMW and it's the Germans and you've got Ferrari and it's the Italians. And so they're being followed by, you know, these hometowns or these countries, if you will. And so Ferrari is the red, it's the closest cause it's five miles to Italy from there. And, uh, the, the Ferrari car is red. And so Everywhere you go, every street corner, they've got a vendor out there selling merchandise and it's, it's, it's all red. I mean, everything is like, there's nothing dedicated to the BMW team. That's like blue. It's like, everything's red. You want to buy a jacket, a shirt, a hat. And so we're walking through the town for like 
probably four or five hours just taking all the festivities before the race. And then we go up and find our place and you didn't have to buy tickets. You just find a place up on the hillside and you watch from whatever vantage point you can find. And uh, we're up there and you're looking back at the hillside and it's just a sea of red. I mean, it's just like, it's just like if you went to like the Super Bowl, you know, times 10 probably of like everybody wearing the same color and everybody's rooting for that Ferrari car. And I sat there for a couple hours and watched this. And my take as an entrepreneur is I walked away and we went to get beers and pizza out in this, this sidewalk cafe afterwards. And we sit down and my brother's like, that was unbelievable. And I look at him and I said, you know what? Every athletic event from little league, high school, everyone in the United States would look like that if the product was made available. And he's like, what the heck are you talking about? And I said, don't you think if you went back to Kirkland and you went to a local little league game, if the parents could dress up in all their kids gear, if you went to our old high school and looked, went to the high school basketball game that the students would all have on jerseys and stuff that represented their school. And he's like, yeah, 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 they would. And I said, well, the only reason it's not, the demand's there, the supply isn't. And I said, what do you think if I left the investment company for a year and went and built online stores for every K through 12 school in the country? There's 130,000 of them. And he said, I think you're pretty crazy. And I said, well, if you'll let me do it, I said, we'll go build it because the technology's there. The internet's there. We can round up the aggregated demand. And I think it'll be large enough to be significant. And so we did that. So I left um, in 2003 after we were only a year into the investment company and was splitting time 50-50 between the investment company and, and perhaps what would become Prep Sportswear. And we did that. We built out the technology. We built out the stores. And our whole vision was the front end that we would aggregate all of the demand for the product and then we would outsource the manufacturing, the fulfillment, what you see today in this facility. And so we quickly proved that the demand was there and we had these orders piling in. And so then we had to find somebody that could fulfill them. So we spent the next two years going up and down the West Coast to find somebody that could profitably fulfill an individual printed piece of apparel in 2004, didn't exist. We were selling t-shirts at that point in time for $13 and it was costing me $36 to make the shirt. And none of us were getting paid that were working in the operation at that time, answering the phones, working on the technology, doing the manu- doing the fulfillment of getting those, aggregating them and taking them to the post office to mail them. And so we would get really excited every time we had a sale. Yeah, it works. And then we go, oh, not too many sales. Right. We're going to go out of business, right? <laughs> so it was like, wow. And so we got two years in and it was like, okay, we got to either scrap this up. This is a big learning lesson. Or we have to figure out how to do the manufacturing ourselves. And again, we had no experience in any of this stuff here. We are two former baseball players selling insurance and have this startup in, uh, investment company. And so... We decided to, you know, my brother, he said, come back to the investment company, right? That was his, right. First, his first thought. And I said, no way. There's no way, man. Let's do it. Let's try and figure out how to, how to build this thing. And so we went to my father and said, hey, we want to put this in your garage. And he said, okay, only the half that your mom has her car and I'm going to keep my car in the garage. Right? <laughs> so we did that and we ended up staying there for two and a half years. Um, by the time we got out of the garage in 20, 2006, uh, we'd taken up the garage, the interim the living room, the kitchen, and we had 12 employees that were working there six days a week uh, to manufacture all the orders that were coming in. Wow. Wow. Would, would your mom and dad like make them dinners or lunches or cookies? Oh, or, I mean, yeah, it, yeah. There's got to be some stories oh, about, yeah. no, my, you know. My parents loved it. So they, uh, my dad was 
instantly involved in the business and he was working, you know, 40 to 60 hours and he was doing the most manual labor tasks in the, in the garage, making shirts, which at that time we had no automation in the manufacturing. It was all manual. And then my mom shortly thereafter joined in. She became the shipping Nazis, what we called her, right? Cause she just took over shipping and wouldn't let anybody else touch it. And we were, she was handwriting the first 10,000 orders we did in this company. She hand wrote the address onto the package and then would go up to the post office and stand in line every single day to take, to deliver them because we were a residential address and uh, UPS and the postal service couldn't take commercial uh, shipments from our house. So we had to take that up every single day. And so they did that. And then as we started to grow, it was mostly uh, high school and college age kids that we were uh, getting to work in the house. And yeah, she was making, you know, Saturday morning breakfasts, late night, Friday dinners. It was, you know, we had a whole refrigerator out in the garage. It was all pop, you know, they'd check off what they wanted her to buy. And she was, she was company mom, you know, for about two years. Wow. That's a great, great story. So, okay. So then 16 to 17 internal employees, and then you start to scale the business, right? So talk about that scalability from the start to, I guess, kind of not to where we are current state, but yeah, build it to the current state. So, you know, we get out to about a quarter of a million in sales in the garage. Um, And again, that's all individually customized pieces that we're making on demand. So you order it today off the website, you know, it looks like we have a warehouse the size of Texas because we have 130,000 schools. And at the time we had about a thousand different products and all these different designs you could put on there. And so, you know, you click on what you want and then it comes through us and then we make it that next day. Right. So even though it's only 250,000 dollars in sales, you know, it's not like a lot of businesses where you have, you know, those are two orders that you send out. I mean, this is orders coming every day and every one of them is unique. There's never something that's, that's the same. And for the most part, pretty much everything is an individual piece. Even if you're ordering two, you're ordering, you know, a sports shirt and a hooded sweatshirt. And maybe you put your name on the back of one, you put one on the other one, it says the school's mascot and the other one, it says, you know, football. So we're making all this stuff in 2006. We finally uh, take space in Seattle. Um, Seattle's this is before Seattle went through a huge transition. There was still warehouse space in the downtown area. So we move out of Kirkland, Washington, which is about 12 miles east of the city. We move into the core because we feel that um, we needed to be kind of that, we needed to attract tech talent and uh, we need to build out the technology side, both in the manufacturing automation and in the front end. So we found 5,000 square feet. We had half that was dedicated to front office and technology. The other half was dedicated to manufacturing. Uh, we outgrew that in about 18 months. And now we're at about $3 million in revenue. Um, we have a secular business at that point in time. You know, Q4 is really heavy because of the holidays and then back to school right before. Q4 is pretty heavy for us. So we're growing this thing out and we realize that, wow, we need a bigger box. Um, we find 18,000 square feet in Seattle down in the kind of the old warehouse area mm-hmm. of Seattle and move down there. We've got 12,000 square foot feet of warehouse space. And we start ramping up the business. And what we realize in about year three in that facility is not only do we need a bigger facility, but we need to be more geographically uh, efficient as far as our location because we're shipping everything direct to consumer. And so, you know, being in Seattle, it's taken five, six days to get to the Eastern Seaboard where 70% of the people reside. And it's the cost to that is astronomical. So shipping becomes like our second biggest cost behind people. So we quickly look and in the course of halftime of a football game on a Sunday watching on TV, I'm looking on the internet and I realize I need to either be in Louisville, Kentucky or Memphis, Tennessee. And that's pretty much my two options. And it was based on the fact that UPS and FedEx had already kind of figured all this stuff out for us and we just needed to follow. 
Right. So we quickly started looking and um, realized that, you know, Louisville, Kentucky was probably a, a really good fit for us. And within a year, um, we had already signed a lease and had plans to move out here. And we, at that time, kept the Seattle facility open and started to slowly transition all the business out to Louisville, Kentucky. And we found a 60,000 square foot facility uh, a couple miles from UPS's World Hub and started building it out. And, you know, here we are. We've been here eight years this week. Um, it's now a 91,000 square foot facility. Um, Happy anniversary. Yeah, thanks, man. Thanks. Happy anniversary. No, Louisville's been good to us. Um, you know, we've, we like the, the, the culture of the people. Um, we like the fact that there's a lot of people that have worked similar jobs in this area. Right. Um, it's grown significantly since we've been out here. You know, one of the tight issues is, you know, labors that, as you guys know really well, very tight in the fourth quarter. It's probably at negative, I'd say probably negative Our 2%. Our people are perfect. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> it's just, we need to grow more of them, right? Right. <laughs> right. Just add water. Yeah. yeah, yeah sure. Now, so that's, it's, it's, it's been, you know, it's, it's been awesome. And yeah. we continue to learn and um, the business continues to change. And, um, you know, we're just kind of, we were lucky and fortunate that we had a good idea, but we also were at the right point in time um, as direct consumer and the internet all started to grow. You know, we were we were there and have been able to ride that wave. Yeah, no, fantastic. Are mom and dad still involved in the business? So, you know, they, they made, at first, uh, when I told them we were going to move it out of the garage, uh, they're like, oh, we're not, you know, then our, our piece is done, right? And I'm like, yeah, your piece, your piece is done. And then as it got closer to that date, they're like, Wait a second. This is like this is like our third child. I mean, that, cool. you're not you're not taking this from us. So they ended up going that first move, and that was a 45 minute commute for them. And they would be the first ones in the office every single morning, and they would be the last ones out. And it got to the point where um, they would come in, and you know, this is a technology business, so you know, there's dashboards and if there's movement in the facility. You know, I can see it on my on my computer at that point in time, but now I can see it on my phone, right? I know when anything in here is being scanned or moved, and. Uh, I would tell my parents, hey, okay, Friday you go home and you don't come back on Saturday and Sunday. Those are days we're taking off. And sure enough, I would wake up, you know, Saturday morning and get on my computer and see that mom and dad are in the facility moving packages, <laughs> right? So we finally got to like 2008 and mom, I had to fire my mom and it was over love, not over performance. Right. I mean, she was outperforming everybody. And you know, that was hard. And then that lasted three months. And then she came back for the fourth quarter because partly because we probably needed her and partly because she kept banging on the door saying, let me in. And so we did. And I ended up firing her three times before she finally realized that, you know, um, there was more to life than working. And by then my brother had kids and she realized that was her calling. So she went and, and became a grandparent, but my dad stayed until, uh, 2011. He had some illnesses that he fought that year and that was a good time for him to transition out. And, you know, he's been healthy since that period of time and he, he stays interested in the business, but he's not involved in the business. Nice, man. That's a tremendous story. Tell, I mean, I think something I struggle with is, and I think there's a lot of things out there, work-life balance, right? So you and I travel a lot. Uh, Calvin does some now too. Um, talk to us about, I guess, and for folks, whether they travel or they don't, but how do you be an entrepreneur and be a successful entrepreneur while balancing family? I know you have two daughters, six and three. Um, and how do you, how do you, how do you, what's your, I guess, what's your routine, daily routine and what's your, what's your, how do you balance that? Cause I struggle with it personally. Yeah, I know. I think, you know, anybody that's working at a high level and, and, and trying to continue to outperform, um, you know, you're going to always have those, those work-life balance, uh, issues. And 
um, you know, I, I think for me, uh, realizing what's important and being able to kind of stack rank, uh, those things has been really helpful. Um, there's just not enough time in the day to do everything. And you know, now that, you know, we're both parents, you know, you start to realize that, you know, that's a, you, there's a big portion of time that needs to be dedicated to, to that portion of your life. And when I was an early entrepreneur, it was very easy. Um, it was like being a professional baseball player. I was all in a hundred percent of the time was, was pretty much work. And, you know, I wasn't, I didn't date for quite some time. And, you know, I met my wife, uh, through a charitable event that the company was at, at the special Olympics, we were volunteering and she happened to come along with one of my employees. And so I met her, otherwise I probably wouldn't have met her. You know, we've been together 10 years now, but, um, realizing, you know, what's important and then really looking back at, you know, how much time do you need or do you want to dedicate to those things? And for me, you know, that stack ranking, you know, I had probably about six or seven things that were really important. And once I started allocating time to them, you know, it was really hard to get past the fourth, the fourth one. There just wasn't enough time. And so I continually go back and do that on an annual basis and look and see, okay, where am I spending my time? And, you know, for me, you know, families first and foremost, um, my health is second. And then uh, third is the business. And after that, you know, I have my friends and, and, and network of people, but, you know, they know that, you know, my time's super limited. And so I try and optimize that with them. But um, those are really the three things that I'm really, really focused on. And, you know, coming from a sports background, I'm extremely disciplined. And, um, you know, I've just tried to stay really true to that and realize if I'm going to put more into the business, then that means it's going to come out of somewhere else. And so really trying to get the best people you can around you and being able to delegate things and take things off your plate. And it becomes really key as you start to scale a company. Yeah. yeah I got to get rid of guys like Blackman over there. He, <laughs> he's not getting it done around yeah, send me. Him, so. send, send him off hiking, man. Right. <laughs> That's how I'm going to get rid of him. You're right. Hey, uh, you do need to go out West. You, we do need to get you on uh, Rainier. So well, that's an easy way to circle myself with I'll better. visit Seattle, but not the mountain. <laughs> not happening. Do you have a morning routine? I do. I do. So I, I get up. My wife's an anesthesiologist. So she, she works uh, three 12 hour days. Um, so I get up uh, every morning at 545 and I hand off to the nanny at six o'clock and I take off for the gym, go to the gym for an hour and a half, uh, do that uh, six days a week. And then the seventh day I go for a really long run. Um, but that allows me to really, you know, stay energized, really think through situations. It's really, that's like my time that I get to spend alone with my thoughts. And then, um, you know, I go to work, get into the office, uh, eight 30, uh, usually leave the office by five 30. It's about a 30 minute commute home. Even though I'm seven miles door to door, it takes me 30 to 45 minutes every night to get home. Thanks, Amazon. See, oh God. I have Thanks, to drive Amazon. through the campus. Yeah. <laughs> so the campus exists between my office and my house. Um, so Seattle has just changed so much in the last three years, but, um, I get home around six, six thirty, and uh, you know that's that's family time. And until we put the kids to bed around eight, eight thirty, um, I get a good two hours with them during the week. And then you know weekends are pretty much uh, whatever my wife tells me I'm doing. And it usually involves you know you know mostly time the kids. That's great. I mean, that's Love it. I gotta get on that. I, I've been getting up early, but the my problem with my morning routine is consistency. 
your consistent discipline. I, I'm there. I'm on and off. Right. right. And that's my pattern. Need your help. <laughs> Need your help. <laughs> hey, I'm, I'm just being honest. I, right? Absolutely. I mean, yeah. I'm throwing myself on the sword. I love it. I'm not perfect. I struggle too. I struggle with the morning routine, but that's why we're here. You know Absolutely. what I mean? So I think, I think obviously as, as we come to a conclusion, I want to know what the, what the, the future of prep sportswear and vintage brand and for Chad, like what, what is your, what's your future? What are you visualizing? Well, you know, we, We've really rebuilt the entire company over the last three years. Um, we kind of got to a point where uh, technology had caught up with us. Uh, you know, we were early. Um, it's great to be early. We had a lot of momentum. Um, we were able to build a lot of distribution. Um, we have a household list of people that have purchased from us in the last three years. It's over a million. And, you know, we've got a lot of great automated manufacturing. But um, the world has changed. It's changed a ton. And, uh, you know, 10 years ago, we weren't all sitting here with phones and operating our life off of a phone. And so just that alone has changed how we go to market and the technology that we need to be using. And so it was about 2015 when, you know, we realized uh, companies that were coming in to compete and were basically attacking the same business model and the same customer that we were, were benefiting from new technologies. And so that meant they were building their websites off of uh, new technology that was all new in the last couple of years, or they were just out simply outsourcing it to somebody like Shopify and had an e-commerce platform up and running within a, a few days. And all our stuff is proprietary. You know, we had to build everything because none of the stuff existed back uh, 16 years ago. So even like our CRM, our customer relationship management program, all of our manufacturing, all our dashboards, all our reporting, all the automation, the manufacturing was all built by us. And so, we realized that in order to stay competitive and continue growing, um, we had to start using a lot of the, the, the service-based technology that was out there. So you know, the one that you guys hear about all the time is the cloud. Yep. And so, you know, we still, we still manage our own co-location center, which means we have 40 uh, servers and databases that is our structure, our stacks. We do all the software updates. We manage all that. And we're, we're slowly progressing towards the cloud and we'll be there in the next couple of years. And that just reduced the cost structure because it's less people that have to manage that. It's less up paying for software from Microsoft. It's, it's the difference between buying a new house and renting and then being able to continually get all of the warranties and updates as you move along. So we've made that transition successfully here in the last uh, six months. We have a whole new technology platform. We, we brought in a whole new team of developers um, it was all senior uh, veteran uh, developers from Google, guys that had started their entrepreneurial. They had started companies, sold them to Google, stayed there for five or six years, and then came out and were looking for the next big thing. And, you know, Seattle, there's a there's a growing network of tech people, obviously, and I knew some of these guys. And we brought them in uh, a couple of years ago, and they've entirely rebuilt our technology. We've been able to um, partner with a couple of companies that we've uh, started and new brands, vintage brand is one of them. Uh, we have a brand that we just launched yesterday uh, called Fan Thread. Um, it's revolutionary. I, I think it's truly gonna, it's gonna change 20 years from now, people look back and this is, gonna, this is gonna change this country as far as apparel manufacturing goes. There's 60 million jobs, um, mostly in Central America and Asian countries where it's cut and sew. So that means all the, all the apparel that we're wearing, somebody has manually cut that and sewn that back together. There's 60 million people that fulfill uh, that industry and the, those professions. And the automation is there now to basically eliminate all that and streamline the supplier supply chain. And wow. 
We've been working on it for 30 Can I months. Be your brother? Can I be your third brother? <laughs> We're getting on this staffing business not working out. Obviously, I'm making wrong decisions. Here. Hey, you got to be willing to think long term, right? This is this doesn't happen overnight. So we've been working on this for 30 months. It launched yesterday, and this was so that's why I'm here this week. So it's back here. I'll show you afterwards some of the stuff, but. Uh, we're able to print on white fabric, uh, base fabric, and then it goes through a laser and it cuts and then it comes out and all we do is sew the pieces together. So, you know, we launched the first hooded sweatshirt yesterday, um, the brand's fan thread, and we'll be in the process over the next few months launching sports shirts, jerseys, zip ups, you know, baseball jerseys. So now we can do all the authentics on demand. So you think about a college program, um, 23 sports, uh, take the University of Cincinnati, you know, where you guys are from. If you go downtown somewhere in Cincinnati to a team shop, you know, they probably have a ton of t-shirts and sweatshirts. You know, they probably have maybe the football jersey and the basketball jersey, maybe the baseball jersey because they've had some success in that program, but it's probably, you know, one or two versions, the home and the way, and they have like three or four numbers they show, right? Well, we have the capabilities to do now. You think about these football teams with like, you know, Nike started with the University of Oregon with like 300 different combinations of jerseys and they're coming out with something every single weekend. They wear it on Saturday. All we need to do is take a screenshot in the pattern and we can sell it on Monday and make it next day. Put your name, your number on it. But we're not going to stop at football and basketball. We're going all sports because it all just works out the same manufacturing footprint and it's sitting right over there. So there's huge opportunity in scale. Um, there's huge opportunity in the vintage aspect of, you know, we've, we've curated... 10,000 sports tickets and programs from the last 150 years of sports, starting with the first college football game in 1869. Uh, it was Princeton and, and Rutgers. We have that ticket all the way up to uh, 1989 is where we cut. And 10,000 tickets that we're printing across about two dozen different items, things like canvases, stainless steel cups, mugs, T-shirts, hats, uh, all those images that are on those tickets. So it's all the vintage sports images. Uh, and right now we have 350,000 unique products that are on the website, vintagebrand.com, where you can come and buy those. We manufacture all that stuff here in the United States in this facility, and we ship it out the next day. Man, I love it. And, and Chad actually hooked me up. He uh, found out my dad was a big uh, Cleveland fan, and they had actually the vintage uh, Chief Wahoo on some uh, coasters. So he was a happy so, man. So, so thank you for that, by the way. Sellers. Hey, you told me you told me it would be before we launched. Yeah, right. See, I'm a visual, I'm a visionary. <laughs> He's visionary. So he is. He is. But how can um, how can we tell our listeners to follow you? Um, just reiterate the brands. Obviously, Prep Sportswear, the vintage brand, and Fan Thread. Correct. Yeah. So there are all you, ways to follow you, and then you have, I know you have Instagram and you have Twitter. Yeah, I'm on Instagram. My name, you know, Chad Hartvixen. Um, we started a college game day tour last year that you're familiar with. We it's went fantastic, out to, by the way. Yes, we're going to do it again this year. It was such a success. Uh, we went out. We picked a what we believed to be uh, the top college football game that week around the country. Uh, ended up, we ended up uh, going ten weeks. Five of the weeks we were at the same game. Game day, ESPN game day was at, and we walked around. We handed out uh, two hundred fifty thousand uh, koozies beer koozies that were branded half to the university with their old vintage logos and half to vintage brand and walked around and just handed them out individually and told the story uh, of vintage brand and what we were doing. And, um, you know, we averaged 12 miles walking at each one of these stadiums on a Saturday wow. and we would show up at five, six in the morning and we would go all the way up until game time, go to the game and then go out and continue to, to walk around and meet with people during, uh, the evening when they're, they're tailgating. And it was just, it was awesome. The organic hustle. I just love that. I mean, so many people think like 
the business is just this, this, these things just happen. And I think through this storyline, I tell people that all the time, cause I've, you know, did the same thing, like developed this company from the get go, like ground zero. Um, and so I always tell, they always say the glory days, but you know, the pain and the, the, the opportunity and the sacrifices, like I said, you are just straight up hustling across the board and, uh, to go out there. I love that story. Um, and I was thankful that I actually got a shout out by, by him on the, on Instagram, uh, me and my, uh, blue, uh, Christmas suit. I got on there. He's got like a, <laughs> I did he's got like 130,000 followers. Follow Chad. It's good. Follow. And, uh, and make sure to follow this game day. And, and quite frankly, if I can convince the wife, I'm, I'm going to join him on the trail for one game. Oh, we would love to have you. So we'd love to have, we've already have a tentative schedule okay. for all the games. Yeah. If you can send me that, I'll send you that over. But basically, um, we're starting, we're going to kick off in Seattle at the Huskies home opener, opener in Seattle. And then I think our first real game is like that second week of the season, like around September 7th or 8th. And then we're going to go all the way through the week before uh, Thanksgiving. But, so what was your favorite uh, bunch of games in the SEC? Okay. They were going to the SEC four times. We're going to be at the Notre Dame, uh, uh, Michigan game. We're going to be at LSU, uh, Alabama. We're going to be at a few of the, the the bigger ones. Wow. What was your favorite road trip this year? Would you say? I know, you know that's it's, a fun, it's hard funny one, because uh, when it was all over and you know we've been on the road for you know I ended up traveling 100,000 miles last year. With 60,000 of them were in the the three month period of of that uh, that those those uh, the game day tour, but. Uh, you know, every trip was different and unique, and to really see uh, what goes on in the SEC is pretty phenomenal. You know, you hear about it, you know, I get tired of hearing about the SEC, but I get it now, you know, seeing just the people, you know, they live it. It's just, it's their life, and uh, the enthusiasm behind the teams and the passion was just so great, and then to see some of the other programs that weren't in the SEC and to see how different this country is, um, but it was just a great experience. And, um, you know, the university of Michigan, uh, was somebody that, you know, I grew up rooting against because I was a PAC 10 guy and we played Michigan, in the Rose bowl. And I was seven, eight years old a couple of times in Ohio state. And so those, those, those were the enemies, but I, I really, I really, uh, love the Michigan trip. That was, um, and that was one where, you know, we were booking all this stuff way out in advance. And now because of cable TV, they don't announce the game times until like two weeks before. Right. So we don't know what time these games are. And so, uh, the Michigan game, we had picked to go to Michigan, Nebraska. And we thought, you know, those guys were coming off, uh, a pretty decent, well, they had frost in the first year. Right. So he was coming out. We thought that would be interesting frost, uh, there, uh, playing against Michigan and, um, you know, Michigan ended up losing their first five games. And so you know, nobody wanted to watch that game on TV. So they, they published at 11 o'clock in the morning. So we're flying in on Friday night. Okay. Flying three time zones, come in and we're going to distribute 5,000 of these koozies by hand. Right. And there's, there's, there's five of us. So it's a thousand each and it's going to take us four hours to do that. So we got to get out there and set up 4:30 in the morning at the university of Michigan. It's pitch black and you're out there doing this. And so we went through that and that was that was probably our best experience that weekend. You know, we go out to a local bar and do a promotion a Friday night and Saturday night, but that was really cool. Um, LSU was LSU and Penn state were absolutely out of control. I've never seen anything like it. You know, I was at Notre Dame when we were ranked number one in the country, two straight years in 89 and 90. So I saw big games. I saw Notre Dame, Miami basically play for the national title in the regular season those years. And, uh, no, <laughs> Penn State. There was two hundred thousand people that showed up for the Penn State Ohio State game. So they were four and nine as midseason, and it was a seven p.m. game. 
only 100,000 people were going into the stadium. There's no 100,000 stayed out in the parking <laughs> lot to party all day long. I've been there. I, I, I was there as a little kid. Yeah, Beaver Stadium and yeah. the, the whiteout. I mean, yeah. And you look around, it's like there, there's no civilization, but you know, you got to, I think we drove, uh, it took us three hours to get there from uh, Pittsburgh. Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. yeah. So, and then LSU is just a, you know, it's just a beast in itself. I mean, there was, there was, they said there was 200,000, but that was so widespread across the campus that you just pockets everywhere. And that was, that was a really unique experience as well. Yeah. Well, fantastic. Well, we look forward to following you. I'm glad that you were able to throw those in there. And, and definitely, um, as we progress, would love to continue the conversation. And uh, on behalf of the underdog, I know myself, Calvin, Patrick, and, and Tiffany, who helps us in marketing, we appreciate your time. Um, you know, we look up to, I, since I met you, I've looked up to you uh, as far as, you know, someone to aspire. You know, your story, as I've even learned today, is great. Um, the true American entrepreneur story and just overcoming, like I said, it's amazing making 750 bucks a month or 850 bucks. Now your plane ride out here is more expensive than that. <laughs> you know, I don't think you're making that anymore. Um, but you know, we, we appreciate obviously the partnership and the friendship. Hopefully we can develop and, um, you know, keep rocking it. Thank yeah, you so much. I, I really appreciate you guys coming out here and, and taking the time. Absolutely, so, man. Appreciate it. It means a lot. And, you know, we told the team yesterday, you guys were ready to come and, you know, things like this mean something. Yeah. You know, I think you guys are onto something. Uh, you know, the employees that you guys are taking an interest in not only what we've built, but what we're doing and what we're going to build. Yeah. And that's, that, 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 that's meaningful. And I, I just really want to thank you guys and commend you for taking the time to do that. Thanks. Appreciate Absolutely, it, man. Appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for listening to The Underdog Podcast. Please subscribe and rate our podcast on the Apple and Google Podcast apps and send our Twitter handle a screenshot of your rating at Underdog Pod with your shirt size for a chance to win a free t-shirt. See you next week on the UDP.